grab your seats and uh, take your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are right at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back. Just put your hand up in the air. We'll get a Bible across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, keep this. This is our gift uh, to you today. We'd love for you to take home a copy of God's Word and and trust that it would be an immense blessing to you. I want to begin by simply reading the passage, the, the entire chapter. So you can, again, make your way there, chapter 23. And uh, I would invite you to follow along with me. Genesis chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, says this. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place." Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Trust that it will be an encouragement for you and me today. Um, Earlier this week, uh, my wife who just happens to be named Sarah, (laughs) casually asked me a very important question. She looked at me with dead seriousness in her eyes, and she said, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? (laughs) For those of you who have not been keeping up with a contemporary culture, Um, This apparently is the question that is circulating around the globe. Apparently, some woman somewhere came up with some idea that men think about the Roman Empire at least one time every single day. And and so what we have is this phenomenon just breaking out across the globe where women go up to men with a video camera. Thankfully, my wife did not do this, so this is not posted online. And they ask their, their significant other, a man in their life, this question, and they're stunned by the answers. Now, to be fair, um, 
this, whatever statistic, this made-up statistic, it's just not true, first of all, and, and there's obviously the anecdotal evidence is now out there for everybody to see, but it is staggering how, apparent, how often, apparently, many men think about the Roman Empire. And I know what you're, you're thinking, well, what did you say, Ian? I said, of course, I think about the Roman Empire <laughs> almost every single day. And, and, and my wife's like laughing, like, I don't understand. Like, wh- what do you mean? And I said, I'm concerned that you don't. You see, the New Testament, <laughs> the New Testament is written in the very context of the Roman Empire. It's almost impossible to understand the New Testament without some broader context of the, the cultural ethos of the Roman Empire. How do you not, I'm just kidding, I didn't say all that. But that would have been the very spiritual answer, would it not have Now listen, that is a really, really silly question, and we can stand around, sit around debating the merits of it and ask all kinds of sociological questions, maybe more psychological, about why men tend to think about this more frequently than women. But but this passage, listen, has kind of struck me this week because there's a far more important question that I think we ought to be asking ourselves, and it's simply this. How often do you think about death? That's a way better question. You see, this is, uh, in some senses, a funeral sermon. I I think you probably kind of got that, but you're still maybe confused about the point of this passage, why it lands here in the book of Genesis, and that's fair. But I think it's really important to see that at the heart of this passage, what we're really looking at is the death and burial of Sarah, the matriarch of the people of God, the wife of Abraham, through whom the promised son Isaac has come. But it's important to see this passage through the broader context. Remember that God has promised to Abraham that he will give to him land, seed, and blessing. We've been looking at that over the past couple of weeks as we've kind of been diving back into the book of Genesis, but remember the context here. After 25 years of waiting, patiently waiting with lots of ups and downs, finally Isaac has arrived. And now, at last, he gets some, Abraham does, some of the land. Here's what you need to see. He's got the promised son, at least in part, the fulfillment of that piece of the promise. But now what we're seeing is that God is going to be faithful to give him a piece of the land promise. Don't miss this. He's going to get a little piece of land. It's a cave in which he's going to bury his wife, and there's a field there. But this little piece of ground in the land of promise matters immensely in the grand scope of redemptive history. You see, why is this so significant? Here's why. Because God's word of promise creates a hope that will see us, God's people, through life and through death. Let me say that again. God's word of promise creates a hope that will see us, God's people, through life and through death. This little piece of land will become incredibly significant even in the rest of the book of Genesis. Isaac and Rebekah are going to be buried in this same cave. Jacob, Joseph, both of those two great men in this book are going to give instructions to have their, their bones or their bodies buried here in this place in the land of Canaan. Because they believe that God has promised them this land, and if they don't receive it in this life, listen, here's the key to this passage, they believe they will receive it in the next. God's word of promise creates a hope that will see us, God's people, through life and death, and that's really what this chapter is all about And I want to look here at three profound realities about death that produce three proper responses of hope for the Christian. Three profound realities about death that produce three proper responses of hope for the Christian. First is this, death is not normal. Mourn with hope. Now there is, for us, 
a sense in which death is normal. It is the reality. It's something we're all going to face, whether we like it or not. And I think this is a a startling kind of truth for many of us to process. You see, many of us, we don't like thinking about death. So when I ask the question in the introduction, how often do you think about death, there's, I think, a, a number of different kinds of people in this room. Some of you think about death all the time, like it's nonstop, and you think about death in this kind of crippling fear sort of way. You're terrified about death. It handcuffs you. It handicaps you. You're constantly worried and anxious. Some of you don't think about death at all. You just kind of push it out of your mind. You pretend like it doesn't even exist. And you just want to live each day as if you're never going to die. Some of you, you think about death, and what it does in your life is it, is it produces you to fight against death. Right? You, you do everything you can to prevent yourself from aging, right? You, you just, you know, you take all the, the pills and you lather yourself up with essential oils. <laughs> You exercise like crazy, but the the truth is this, listen, you're still going to die. You may look better than everybody else when you die, but you're still going to die. You're not going to smell better. You see, life in this world, we need to remember, it's wonderful and it's exciting. It's a massive blessing to take a breath every single day, and yet at the same time, we understand that life is hard. It can be so sad and frustrating. We are experiencing a kind of death even though we're living. Things around us decay, seasons turn from one to the next, the cycles of life and death. They're prevalent everywhere we look. People are born like Isaac and people die like Sarah. Sarah occurs, her name, four times here in these first couple of verses. But I want you to see this, her name, I don't know if you caught this, it's actually not going to be used again until verse 19. In fact, she will constantly be referred to as, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, bury your dead. Seven times that phrase is going to be repeated, reminding us Sarah is no longer present. The death has come knocking at her door. I want you to notice verse 2. Perhaps you're trying to understand how this passage kind of fits. But in verse 2, we're told, verse 1 tells us Sarah lived 127 years. But verse 2 tells us this, that she died in the land, notice this, of Canaan. There are some some literary features. Remember, Moses is writing this. Moses is a literary genius. And Moses uses some literary techniques to help us actually understand the main thrust or point of the passage. And so I just want you to notice here that he links together the name Sarah, and then he links together this idea of the land of Canaan to kind of begin this passage. Then I want you to look down at verse 19. It says, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, there's the name again, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron. Notice this again, in the land of Canaan. So here's what Moses is trying to say. This is bracketing the passage. This passage has everything to do with both death and land. And these two ideas somehow in the promises of God are linked together in a profound way. Sarah is 127 years old. She is the first woman that we know of to be listed to die in the scriptures. She's the only woman in all the scriptures to have her age listed. Moses learned his lesson. (laughs) But it's interesting because I just want you to think about this. 127 years is is a long time. And, and yet, I want you to consider this. Like, think about the life that Abraham and Sarah lived together. I mean, they, they have been married a long time, okay? They've seen a lot of ups and downs in their life. And, and by the age of, remember, remember how old she was? 90 years old when she gives birth to Isaac. At this stage in her life, Isaac is 37 years old. She's not going to get to see her grandchildren, but she's lived a good long life. And yet, here's why I'm saying this. Most of us are never... Dare I say, none of us are ever going to see 127 years, okay? 
And even if you did, it would be like a blip on the radar screen in the scheme of eternity. It's like nothing. Our life is, is, is like a vapor. It's like smoke. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But Abraham, having the, the relationship he did, he obviously mourns and he weeps, the text tells us, which is, by the way, the normal response to the death of someone you love and cherish. But it also reveals a profound truth. It reveals the truth that death is actually not normal. It's, it's like Jesus. We just read from John 11, and Jesus is preparing to go and see Lazarus. And you, you notice that the text told us that he waited. So he knows Lazarus is dead. He's waiting until Lazarus dies. Now, the word of God is going to tell us in chapter 11 of John that Jesus, right, at the death of his friend when he arrives, what does Jesus do? He weeps. And he weeps, yes, because there's this emotional, you know, turmoil in his heart because of the loss of a loved one, but it's deeper than that. The, the, the term actually expresses some kind of anger. It's like a horse that's kind of pawing at the ground because it's angry. That's the way that term is often used in extra-biblical literature. And it shows this kind of anger towards the very thing that has occurred. Not anger towards Lazarus, but angry towards death itself. Death is not normal. Death is an intrusion. Death was not supposed to be. It's helpful for us to remember that. Because it reminds us that death is only present because sin still remains. And it's good for us actually to contemplate and remember death. I want you to see what the author a Solomon of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2. He says that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, he says this, listen, when you truly contemplate death, when you come face to face with death, when you're regularly struck by the, the reality of death that you will inevitably face, it's going to, it's going to, or it's supposed to transform the way you actually live. And so I would just say to you, as a maybe point of application, don't be afraid to go to funerals. They're good for your soul. You come to funerals, you go to funerals in order to contemplate your death so that you can truly live. We're supposed to look at death and say, say, that's not right. It's not supposed to be this way. That's why we feel so much pain. It's not just the loss. I'm convinced of this. It's not just the loss of the person we love. I think there's something deep down inside of the human spirit, right? God has placed eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes says. There's something within us that understands we were meant to live forever. And death is an intruder. It is an enemy. It is an assassin. And as we look at death and we realize that it is not normal, part of what God, I think, wants us to understand is that one day it actually will not be normal. It will be gone. It will be dealt with. It will never be seen again. And so there's supposed to be these pangs of longing within the human heart that longs for the day where we will see death no more. But in this life, in this life where it has become normal because sin is normal, death should actually function for us like a teacher. So let's allow the teacher in Ecclesiastes to instruct us or to help us to look at death and to see that as a kind of instructor to our souls. I want to just give you four ways death needs to help us. First, death helps us understand our purpose You see, when we face death, one of the questions we're intended to, be, to ask is this, why am I here? Why am I even here? I mean, life is, life is short, why am I here? What's my purpose? What's, what's the goal that I'm supposed to grab a hold of in this life? Is this, is this life all for nothing? I, I, I listened to a, a famous actor talk about he's being interviewed, and he's adamant atheist. He's like, I don't believe in God. And then so the, the interviewer asked him, well, what do you believe happens after death? And he said, nothing. 
Nothing happens after death. And, and then the, the interviewer who said, well, are you sure about that? He said, well, no, but if I am, who cares? Who cares? You just, just be a good enough person. He gives the standard, just be a good enough person, and hopefully that'll be, you know, whatever. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Listen, it's not going to be fine. And you have a purpose. You're alive right now because God has created you and he's given you a purpose for which to live. And if you want the short answer, it's really simple. It's this, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were created to know God, to love God, to live in relationship with God, to live for something outside of yourself, more than yourself, for the one who deserves all honor, all glory, and all praise. You were created for that purpose. Secondly, death helps us realize our problem doesn't it? It puts us face to face with the reason itself to ask that question. Well, why is death here? Why do we die? And the answer that we're supposed to come to is this. This isn't normal. Something's happened. Something's been broken. Something's been destroyed. And we're supposed to get to the biblical answer. It's this. Sin. Sin is the reason that death exists. And physical death, we saw this in the beginning of Genesis, didn't we? Physical death is simply intended to remind us that there is a greater spiritual death that occurs. Separation from God. We are, we are rebellious against God, and we're separated from any proximity to him. We can't enjoy the purpose for which we were created. That's what sin has done. It has disconnected us from the God of creation, from the purpose of our existence, and it goes even further than that. It's not just like we, we have no purpose. We are actually currently deserving of God's judgment because the wages of sin is death. Here's what God said to Adam and Eve. Eat this fruit, and dying you shall surely die. There will be judgment. And so human beings are supposed to come to grips when they, when they look at death, when they think about death with the human problem, the human predicament that we are actually in sin without God and without hope in this life. Third, here's what death is supposed to teach us. It's supposed to help us adjust our perspective. So if you're a Christian here today, this is really helpful because hopefully you've got the other two points down. See, death has a way of saying to us that there are things that matter and things that don't. Isn't that true? I've been to a lot of funerals. I have never been to a funeral where somebody gets up and, you know, gives a eulogy and starts talking about all the things the person owned. Not once. Or any of the things that tend to take up most of the concerns of our lives, for that matter. Maybe you've heard it said, maybe some of you need to be reminded that you never see a, a U-Haul following a hearse. He who dies with the most toys still dies. And you see, this is where death helps us not only to adjust our perspective, to figure out what is most important in life, it helps us then to establish our priorities. Reminding us of the things that matter and the things that don't. What, what will I actually live for? What will consume my life? What will consume my thoughts? What will consume my energy? Where, where will, where will I, I pour my resources? What will I choose to invest in? It's good for us to consider our own death, and maybe the greatest application for you sitting here today is, is simply this, to ask yourself this question, am I ready to die? Am I ready to die? Am I able to mourn, but mourn with hope, mourn with the reality that there's more to come, that this isn't actually all there is to it? Can you answer this question today? What is your hope in life and death? My own personal testimony as a young child, I believe by the grace of God, I was saved at a young age. My own testimony 
I, I vividly remember being struck by the reality of death as a young child. I remember being terrified of the thought that I was like coming, clicking in, right? The light bulb went on, I'm going to die. But it was more than that, more than just realizing I was going to die. I realized that I was going to die and I was going to stand before the judge of the universe. And as it currently stood, I was standing in sin. I knew that if I died, I would die not just because of sin, but I would die in my sin and I would pay the penalty for my sin for all eternity. And the Lord used that moment in my life to open my eyes to the beauty of salvation in Jesus Christ, the one who lived and died for me. And so I would just encourage you, prepare for death. Get ready to die. We are all going to die. Go to funerals. Allow death, listen, not to be a source of entertainment in your life primarily, okay? Let it be a truth that truly shapes the way you live your life. Use death to point others to Christ and to offer them the same hope I trust that you have in life and death, the hope of Christ alone. Secondly, I want you to see this. Death is not final. Cling to hope. And we kind of are now moving into the middle of this passage, which really is the bulk of this passage. It's, it's interesting that Sarah is kind of not really the main focus of the passage, so in this middle section, we begin to see Abraham approaching these Hittites. Uh, these are people who live in the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan again being the land that was promised to Abraham. But you'll notice that these are the people who have possession there. They reside there. They own the land. And, and verse 4 tells us that Abraham understands this entirely. Look at how he describes himself. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. He comes to them recognizing, listen, I'm basically a squatter here. He's saying to them, I know this isn't my homeland, I know this is your land, but I, I have a little bit of a problem. And this begins, this little bit of an exchange, this bartering back and forth. And I know as we read it, you're like, this is a little bit bizarre. But here, here's what you need to know. This is really a kind of cultural reality and the way they kind of haggled and bartered back in the ancient world. And so what we're seeing here is simply uh, really just replicates or really teaches us how they, they operated when it came to commerce and business, especially with major transactions. There was this kind of honor and shame culture in the Middle East, much like there still is today. And so you'll notice here the language is very deferential. It's respectful. It's honoring. And yet at the same time, just like business tra transactions today, you can put on a good front, but sometimes there's ulterior motives behind them. And you see a little bit of that going on here. And so Abraham, he's asking for a piece of land. And you'll, you know, it sounds really honorable. Well, you know what? Just, hey, take some, borrow some land and bury your dead here. Like, what is a piece of land? You are a prince of God among us. Which, by the way, who wouldn't want that said about them? <laughs> like, apparently, Abraham has a, has a good reputation in the land. But I think we need to see here, he's intent on owning a piece of the land. He's not interested in borrowing. And so here we are going to see them haggle back and forth. And the purchase of the grave is intended to counter, listen, remember that the death of Sarah should be in kind of our purview, but the purchase of the grave is intended to counter the finality of death. You say, how so? Well, because by owning a part of the land, Abraham is proclaiming its ultimate ownership. His wife's body entombed at Hebron, the center of the land, was Abraham actually clinging to the hope of God's promise. In spite of how things look, in spite of how things helped, or felt, excuse me, what he's proclaiming is this, I believe God is going to do what he said he's going to do. He is faithful. It's hard to truly grasp the significance of this moment without understanding a, a bit of a theology of the land. And I want to kind of maybe rehearse a little bit of that for you. For some of you, this is going to be familiar, but maybe for some of you, this is a little bit new. Remember, God promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. 
And, and one commentator says this, he says, the original idea of land as paradise significantly shaped the expectations associated with redemption and resurrection. He says, as the place of blessedness arising from unbroken fellowship and communion with God, the land of paradise became the goal toward which redeemed humanity was returning. Here's why I'm saying this, okay? So they're haggling over the land, but we need to remember why the land promise was given in the first place. He's pulling us all the way back to the very beginning pages of the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, when God creates Adam and Eve, he places them in a land. He gives it a border, and then he gives them a job. He says to work and to keep it. And then he tells them this in Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful, be fruitful and multiply and fill, help me out, the what? Earth, right? Okay, so I just want you to remember that here's Adam and Eve. They have this job. Whatever it looked like outside the garden, it didn't look like inside the garden, Okay. They're intending to work and keep the garden. They're going to be fruitful and multiply the creation mandate. And eventually, the border of the garden is going to expand and expand and expand. And if they are faithful to do everything God said, eventually the whole earth will be filled with his glory. The kingdom of God over the whole earth. But as we already saw, sin exiled Adam and Eve from the land. They're gone from the land. But what we find out is that God is going to continue his project of redemption. The flood is going to come because of sin on the earth and wipe out the earth, but God's going to repeat the mandate given to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 9, verse 1, God says to Noah, who's like another Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then, after people's refusal at Babel to fill the earth, remember? Remember what happens? All the people band together, and instead of being faithful to fill the earth, what do they do? They unite in a joint effort against God. God disperses them, but it's right on the heels of that. In chapter 12, that God calls Abraham. He makes a new start with Abraham, and he calls him to the land he says that I will show you. And he promises him that land to his seed, to his offspring. And near the end of Abraham's life, God begins to fulfill his promise by giving Abraham a little field with a burial plot as a permanent possession in the land of promise. And ironically, though Abraham is purchasing a burial site in the land of Canaan, listen, the land is connected not to death, but to life. It's connected to a restored humanity, pointing all the way back to Eden where the presence of God dwelled with man, where man enjoyed God in his fullness and all of his glory. And so here we see them haggling over the price of this land and, and I'll give it to you and no, no, let me pay it to you. And what is land between two friends? I mean, so what if the land's worth 400 shekels, right? That's like you, your friend saying they need a, a new car and you're like, borrow my car. I'm like, no, I can't buy it. I can't borrow it. Let me buy it from you. Oh, what's a car worth $20,000 between friends? And he gets it, right? He gets it. He's like, ah, I see what you're getting now. Hold on a second here. He reaches into his little, you know, money bag and pulls out the money and he just gives it to him. Now, here's what you need to understand here. It seems like Ephron is actually asking an exorbitant amount of money for this land. It's over the top. And what's fascinating is that what we see here is that Abraham has no desire to haggle about the price of the land he simply forks over the money. He doesn't care how much it costs. You see, why, why is that significant? Here's why I think, at least in part, this is significant. Because Abraham is telling us, he's teaching us, he's showing us that the things of this earth matter very little compared to the things of eternity. The things of God are far more significant than anything I might want to hold on to here and now in this life. He's holding on to, he's clinging to the very promises of God. And he understands that these are eternal promises. These are promises about his future. These are promises about salvation. These are promises about redemption. These are promises about, listen, this is key, about resurrection. 
think that this is a great reminder, I, I hope, to your soul today that what matters most are the things of God, and God wants to call us to cling to the things that matter, to look beyond what we can see in front of our very eyes, to let go of the things that seem to, to capture our hearts so easily, the things of this earth that will fade away. I mean, I, I even think to like, listen the language, you are a prince of God among us. Again, this, this title of honor, this title of affirmation, he doesn't even care what they call him. I think maybe this is hinting at this idea. It doesn't matter what you think of me. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care about your accolades. I don't care about your praise. I care about what God thinks of me. And I think we would do so well, Christians, listen, to settle these kind of matters in our hearts, maybe even this very day, to go to battle against the places that we're inclined to find our identity, the places that we're inclined to find our value, the places we're inclined to find our joy and satisfaction. Maybe it's worldly success. Maybe it's worldly possessions. Maybe it's affirmation of others, what they think. Maybe that rules your heart, and maybe today is the day you drive a stake into the ground and say, no more. I care more about what God thinks of me. I care more about the things of eternity than I care about the things of this life. If you don't listen, if you don't get to the place where what matters to you most is the Lord, the Lord, if you don't get to the place where you find your identity and affirmation, your joy, your satisfaction in him, you will seek those things from someone or something else and it will always let you down, always. If you live for the acclaim of the world, listen, it's only a matter of time before they turn on you and your whole identity is gone. If you live for the acquisition of property or wealth, the economy can change on a dime. If you live for a certain kind of relationship, maybe that's kids or maybe that's a spouse, even good relationships, things that are great and a blessing from the Lord. If, if that's what you live for, though, it will fail you. They will disappoint you. They will never meet your expectations. They will never provide the kind of joy that your heart desperately longs for because you were made for the infinite, eternal God. I was reflecting on, on Psalm 73, 25 and 26, and I just think this captures it so well. If we can't get here, listen, I promise you, you will always fight this battle. You'll never find victory over sin in your life until you get this verse driven into your heart, until this rings true from every fiber of your being, until you can declare with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and I love this, and my portion forever. You are the infinite, eternal portion that will never disappoint, that will always satisfy. And if I hunger and thirst for you and your righteousness, I will be satisfied. So here's Abraham going back and forth, and he has, he has no interest in a grave on loan program. He, he's at the city gate. This is significant. Twice it's mentioned, and here's why this is so significant, because there's lots of people that are coming into the city gate. There's people there to witness, and here's what we know about the ancient world. The city gate, well, it's kind of like city hall. This is the place where the elders of the city sat, where the decisions were made, where legal proceedings took place. So in other words, this is not some back alley handshake. No, this is a legal proceeding with official and permanent ramifications. And, and we say, why is this so important for Abraham to go through this legal process? Because if somebody just loans it to him, well, they can just take it back, no questions asked. Or maybe their kids one day will inherit that property and they'll boot Abraham and his family from what was once loaned to them. But if he owns it, it's permanent. It's his. And so what you need to kind of grasp here is that the deed is being registered at City Hall. And what we find out here is that his acquisition of this land is critical because it's a reminder, listen, that death is not final. 
The land itself is pointing beyond this moment. It's pointing towards an eternal reality. I want you to see what what the author of Hebrews says. We keep going back to Hebrews because he interprets for us exactly what was going on with Abraham. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. Speaking of Abraham, it says this. Listen, thinking about the land. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. In fact, here's what he would go on to say in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is Abraham, right? Right now. I'm a stranger. I'm an exile on the earth. But he's, listen, he's tapping into a deeper spiritual reality. Something that you and I are supposed to resonate with. Something that's supposed to instruct you and I about how we're supposed to view this life and how we're supposed to view death itself and how we're supposed to find hope in the face of life and death. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Don't you feel that in your heart? You're like, yeah, my home's here, but I'm not home. Something's wrong. This world is broken. This world isn't what it's supposed to be. Death keeps reminding me that this is a short-term plan. There's more than this. There's got to be more than this. We all believe that, don't we? Deep down inside, we believe if I die, this can't be it. There's got to be more. I'm not just a bunch of cells kind of mumbling my way through this earth. I have value. I have significance. I've been created with a purpose. If they had been thinking of that land, the, the physical land, from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, I love this, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Don't you want a better country? Do do you realize that, listen, as, as good as we can make this country based on our own sanctified efforts, it will never be what our heart longs for. No matter how good things get here, the best is yet to come if you're in Christ. So it is with us, right? We look forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. We're looking for a better country, a homeland. God has prepared for us a city just like he prepared for Abraham. So it is with us. Paul says this in Philippians 3.20. Our, Christian, you've got to embrace this, okay? You've got to get this. You've got to hold on to this. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is not final. We cling to the hope of the promises of God. You say, how is this possible that he can cling to this hope? Well, well, here's the final point. Death is not successful. That's how. Therefore, we can live in hope. There has to be a way, here's what I'm getting at, a way that death is not final. Something has to happen because our, our tangible experience, our, our sense, our feeling on this earth is that there's a kind of finality to death. And listen, there, there is a kind of finality to death in the sense that it's going to determine your destiny. And in verse 17 through 19, or 20, excuse me, I won't reread it. I'll just say this, that the negotiations have closed. There's a finality here. The negotiations were successful. The the money has been transferred. The deed has been, been given over to Abraham. He owns the land, and Sarah is buried there. There's a finality here. There's a reality here, a tangible reality that he experiences. And this is signifying that God is faithful And his promises will be successful in the end. You see, he can live now the rest of his life with a taste of the promise. Just like Isaac was a taste of the promise, not the final and full fulfillment of the child who would come to reverse the curse and put an end to sin, but a taste. So to the land is a taste of the heavenly country, the better country that's still yet to come, not just for Abraham's offspring, but for Abraham himself. It would be more than 400 years from this moment 
until Joshua crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land with the nation of Israel behind him, and they received the whole land of Canaan. Under King Solomon, the land expands from the river Euphrates to the border of Egypt, according to 1 Kings 4.21. Under King Jesus, one who is born in the land, the land expands to include the whole earth, as Matthew 5.5 tells us, quoting Psalm 37, for the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus gives his followers the great commission to make disciples of all nations. And when he returns, Revelation 21, 21 says that God's people will receive a new heaven and a new earth. And you see, we can read this story as separate from its context and forget what has just come before it. You see, Moses... You know, as we, it's always a danger when you go on chapter by chapter. You can kind of begin to look at the tree and forget about the forest. So remember the context, even the first few chapters before this, but if you go back to the very beginning of Genesis, there's a thread that's being woven from the beginning to the end. There's a thread of both death and life. There's a thread of resurrection that we're supposed to take note of. I want you to remember, just a couple chapters ago, do you remember, um, here's, here's a 90-year-old Sarah and a 100-year-old Abraham, and Hebrews 11 and Romans 4 make it clear, this is the language that the, the New Testament uses, they were as good as what? Dead. And then God brings forth life resurrection language. And then, just the very next chapter, here is Abraham, a father of Isaac. He's got his young son on a pyre of wood, getting ready to thrust a knife into his chest, putting him to death at the command of God. Why? Why? Hebrews 11 tells us, because he believed. He believed that God would be faithful to his promise, and that God would raise his son from the dead. Resurrection faith. And here, here, Abraham He has this piece of land and he takes his beloved wife and he places her in the tomb and he looks down the road and you want to know what's going through his mind? This tomb, this tomb will be a perpetual reminder that one day, this land, the entire earth will belong to the people of God. You say, how is that possible? Well, somebody is going to come along and somebody has to deal with humanity's greatest problem. Somebody has to take care of death. Somebody has to go toe-to-toe with death, and somebody has to come out victorious on the other end. Somebody has to put death to death. And if somebody can deal with death, that means this. Everyone can be raised to life. Abraham believed personally, listen, he believed personally that he would rise one day from the grave that the land that his wife was buried in, the whole earth eventually would be his. Romans 4.13 makes this abundantly clear. He believed he would inherit the world. And he believed that because he believed in God's power to raise the dead. The hope of humanity rests upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says this, and 17 says this, if Christ has not been raised, this is what Paul says, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see the problem? If, If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, that means death won. It means sin won. But, but conversely, if it's true that Christ rose from the grave, it means he defeated sin and death. It means he's victorious over the grave. It means death cannot hold him. It means Jesus wins and we win if we're in him. When Jesus promised offspring of Abraham hung on that cross, death appeared, appeared to be successful, but three days later when they came to the burial site, the stone was rolled away. And when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. And the angel said to the women who came early in the morning, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
And you see, God gives Israel the first fruits of a grave site in the promised land. So God has given the New Testament church the first fruits of an empty tomb. God's down payment of this promised new creation, resurrection life, is the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul calls Jesus' resurrection in Romans, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of those who have died. And then he says this, for as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And one day, Paul declares, that the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, when this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, in his own time, God will provide us with a homeland, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There he will dwell with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. Do you want to know the secret to this life? Here it is, really simple. Don't live for this life. Don't settle for this world. Don't seek approval, affirmation, or accolades here. Death comes for us all, but hope and life are offered to us all in Christ. Live in hope by believing in Christ and living for him. Come to him and die that you may truly live. Are you ready to die? You need to be. And if you are, let me ask you, are you helping everyone you can get ready to die? Parents, are you helping your kids get ready to die? Are you helping your neighbors get ready to die? Your coworkers, are you helping them get ready to die? We're all going to die. It's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Are you helping them get ready to stand before the great judge? Are you looking beyond this world for your citizenship that's in heaven? Are you living for what's going to last for eternity? Are you letting go of this world? Are you finding your identity and affirmation and your value and and satisfaction in God alone? Are you walking by faith and not by sight? Death is not normal, it is not final, and it is not successful. So mourn with hope, cling to hope, and live in hope. Let's bow in prayer. With your heads bowed, I just want to pray. The words from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time Jesus we praise you the one who has defeated sin and death who has overcome the grave who has given us a living hope we pray that you would receive our praise now In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.